This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Greetings, everyone, once again to the China History Podcast. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you another topic from our long march from Xia to Qing. We've started our little dynasty overview series at around 2000 BC or thereabouts. Today, we're up to the 5th and 6th centuries as we take a look at the Southern and Northern Dynasties, or the Nanbei Chao, that lasted from 420 to 589. This was another period of China where the country is still divided, and as the period name suggests, you have one China up in the north and another in the south. This 170-year period precedes the Sui Dynasty, which unifies north and south again in 589, and sets the country up for the magnificent Tang dynasty that follows the Sui. We're going to look at the Sui next week and the Tang after that. But today we examine the southern Nan and northern Bei dynasty, Chao, the Nan Bei Chao. We're now past the halfway point of Chinese history. If you figure it all started back in 2000 BC with the Xia dynasty of pre-recorded history days, and now we're at 500 AD, that's about 2,500 years. Recorded Chinese history pretty much starts from 1600 BC, so we're looking at about 3,600 or so years of recorded and confirmed history. That's long by any standards. Well, we started off this dynasty overview series with the Xia that lasted 439 years. Sima Qian said they existed, and he wrote the whole story of the Xia and the legendary emperors and how Yu the Great tamed the floods at the request of Emperor Yao, and then went on to found the Xia. King Tang of the Shang State did away with the last Xia emperor, the weak and evil Jie. The Shang, with their oracle bones, who Sima Qian mentioned in his Shi Ji, lasted from 1300 BC until they too met their end, thanks in part to another rotten emperor, Zhou, who had himself overthrown by the founder of the long-lived Zhou Dynasty. The 790-year Zhou Dynasty split up into Western and Eastern periods. The Zhou was the last of the Bronze Age dynasties of China and contained the fabled Spring and Autumn and Warring States periods. China around this time starts to take the form or begins to develop the culture that we in modern times are most familiar with. This was a time of Confucius and all his disciples where the writing starts to take the shape that's recognizable even today. The Zhou ended in 256 BC and 35 years later in 221 BC, at last we have the Qin that unifies all the warring states and petty kingdoms into one single China. The Qin dynasty was short on years, but long on impact as far as successive dynasties and institutions that later defined ancient China. We looked at the Han dynasty, west and east of the Liu family. This time period straddled the time of the height of the Roman Republic and Empire, and of course, Jesus Christ. That lasted 214 years for the Western Han and another 197 years of the Eastern Han. That brought us up to 265 A.D., 
We had Wangmang's short-lived and ill-fated Xing dynasty, which led to the collapse of China as a single entity. And then we had the Three Kingdoms, or San Guo Shi Dai, followed by the Jin dynasty of the Sima clan, who cemented China together, albeit for a rather short time, until this period itself degrades into another one of China's famous patented periods of disunity and internal wars. Then we had from 304 to 439 the confusing, violent, but interesting nonetheless period of the Northern Sixteen Kingdoms. And, as you recall, no doubt from last week's podcast, the fading Eastern Qin Dynasty rallied under Liu Yu, who won back much lost territory from all these wuhu uh, kingdoms in the north. Like various other Chinese heroes before him and hundreds that followed, Liu Yu, after getting as far as he did and finding himself at the head of a trained, loyal, and effective military force, took the opportunity to boot the Eastern Qin Emperor out and to set up his own dynasty, called the Liu Song. Liu, of course, being his family surname. We mostly have come to know this period as the good old Southern Song Dynasty. Now, the Southern Song Dynasty, as it is most commonly known in terms of works of art we have all no doubt seen in books or museums, is mostly associated with the Southern Song period of 1127 to 1279. So we have two Southern Song Dynasties to contend with in Chinese history. Right now, the Liu Song is the lesser well-known of the two. The Song Dynasty, which was another golden age for China and followed the Tang, was split up between the Northern Song, which ran from 960 to 1127, and the Southern Song, which lasted from 1127 to 1279. Once we get to the Song Dynasty, the only periods you have left are the Yuan, Ming, and Qing, and that's it. We're done. Xia to Qing. But today, we look at the lesser known of the two Southern Songs. This is the Liu Song, or the former Song Dynasty, which began in 420 A.D., and lasted for just shy of 60 years before it met its demise in 479. To begin our overview of the southern and northern dynasties, we'll begin here in the south with the Liu Song dynasty and its founder Liu Yu. As I said, Liu Yu put the kibosh on the eastern Jin dynasty when he seized the throne from the last ruler, Jin Gongdi. He carried out the coup d'etat and establishes the Liu Song dynasty. There were four or five southern dynasties in Toto. Five if you count the eastern Jin, four if you start with the Liu Song. Some also consider the eastern Wu of Sun Quan fame to be the first of the six southern dynasties. We're only looking at the four final dynasties, which were the Liu Song, the southern Qi, the Liang, and the last one, which fell in 589, was the Chen. With the fall of the Chen Dynasty, the Sui Dynasty began in this period, which we'll look at next time, set China on a course which is considered the most gilded age in Chinese history. Remember from the last episode, the south of China, in other words, south of the Yangtze River, the once and forever line of demarcation between Huabei and Huanan, Jiangbei and Jiangnan, the, the Yangtze sort of ran right down the center pretty much from west to east and emptied out into the China Sea right at the city of Shanghai. If there's one thing you could say about all the Chinese history podcasts up till now, all the action has always been up in the north. Luoyang, Chang'an, the Yellow River. The, the north was the cradle of Chinese civilization where all the greatest developments were happening. 
They were the line of defense that kept the Xiongnu at bay. The South contained only maybe 10% of China's population. During the time of the Southern Dynasties, that all changed. The Northern Dynasties were not of the Han Chinese. These were the Toba people, who were of the Xianbei tribe. You had a mass migration of Northern Han, who migrated south and started filling up the empty spaces, so to speak, and bring about this balance in the population, not to mention more than a few good ideas from north to south. So bear that in mind as we unfold the drama of the Liu Song. I might interchange the three names, Liu Song, Former Song, or Southern Song. Again, don't get this one mixed up with the one that followed 700 years later. The founder of the Liu Song was Liu Yu. He was uh, the Eastern Jin general who had recovered all this lost territory up to the Yellow River. The Eastern Jin emperor made him Prince of Song. And after the new Prince of Song had done away with the Jin emperor, he founds the Liu Song dynasty in 420. The bad news is this emperor posthumously named Wu Di again, another Wu Di, a martial emperor. He died only two years after he founded the Liu Song dynasty. So the stage was set from the get-go. Once Liu Yu became emperor, he had to contend with a very firmly entrenched and powerful layer of society known as the aristocrats. These were all the noble families, and they were no easy pushover. And the push and pull between the House of Liu, who ruled the Liu Song dynasty, and the entrenched noble families was continuous. And the first two years of the dynasty were good until Liu Yu died, and you had a messy succession with an incompetent eldest son as a successor who was yanked out, killed, and then replaced with Liu Yu's third son, who reigned for the next 29 years as Liu Song Wendi. Now, the secret to a good emperorship was all in the administration. Most all of the greatest of the great emperors always had a good right-hand man who was able to efficiently and fairly run the bureaucracy. Emperor Wen of Liu Song was such a guy. He was Liu Yu's third son, and after the incompetent son was gone, he became the third emperor of this Liu Song line. This Liu Song Emperor Wen had a reputation for frugality and plainness, as well as a very strong devotion to his subjects. His rule was known for two things. One good, one bad. The good, we just said, he was a good administrator, and the government was efficiently run. The bad was that this uh, Liu Song Wendi, he was anxious to win back all this territory from the Northern Wei dynasty. These didn't go too well and ended up weakening the dynasty and exacerbated all the backstabbing going on at the court between competing nobles, generals, and family members. Emperor Wen ended up being deposed and killed by his own son, the crown prince, in a coup d'etat in 453. Amidst the chaos that followed, the crown prince, who was trying his best to clean up the mess he created by killing his own father, ended up being captured and publicly beheaded along with his four sons. His wife and concubines and whatever daughters he had were all forced to commit suicide, and fast work was made of this emperor and his family. Now this fratricidal emperor's posthumous name given to him to define his reign was Yuan Xiong, which means murderer. He was succeeded by the brother who had him executed for killing their father, and this was Emperor uh, Xiaowu. He reigned during a period of further degradation of the House of Liu, and he was succeeded by the inept teenage grandson of Emperor Wen. Now this fool reigned for only a year and was a Caligula type whose 
immorality was surpassed only by his bloodthirstiness in going after any and all perceived enemies. He was assassinated in a palace coup by one of his attendants in 465. These Liu family emperors were all known for their relative cruelty. These were a really tyrannical lot, and revolts and pushback were now breaking out against their rule. The second to the last emperor, Ming, was suspicious of everyone, family or non-family. Nobody was safe or spared his suspicions, and he went around having people bumped off everywhere. Liu Song Ming Di, he died in 472, and that was the end of the Liu Song. Well, almost. They lasted until 479, but essentially, things were kaput for them once Ming Di passes. The recently deceased Ming Di was succeeded to the throne by a boy who was another sadistic, twisted sort. This was Liu Song Hofei Di. So now enter Xiao Dao Cheng. He was a general who served under both Ming Di and Hofei Di. Xiao Dao Cheng supposedly could trace his ancestry all the way back to Xiao He, who you might recall from the earlier podcast where we looked at the founding of the Western Han Dynasty. The great Xiao He, who had so faithfully served Liu Bang, who later became Emperor Gaozu, this General Xiao Daocheng came from that stock, it was said, and he was able to use this to boost his pedigree and dignitas. In short, since we have uh, three more dynasties to get through in the south before we tackle the five northern dynasties, let's just put it this way. Xiao Daocheng had the boy emperor Hofei killed in 477, and he put uh, uh, Hofei's brother on the throne, another teenage boy who he ruled through until Xiao, two years later in 479, does away with this teenage emperor and declared his own dynasty, which is known as the Southern Qi. Upon the advice of a Confucian scholar at his court, this uh, Xiao Daocheng, who has come down to us as Qi Gao Di, ruled as a mostly benevolent and mild emperor who loosened the thumbscrews a little on the daily life of the populace. Despite, despite this reputation for lenience, he did, however, decimate the Liu Song family and carried out this mass slaughter of the clan. I mean, being cognizant in all of China's history, even only up to his time, he didn't want to take any chances with the previous champions rising up and throwing him out. The founder of the Southern Qi dynasty died in 482. Reigning during a mostly peaceful period, he was succeeded by Emperor Wu. Yep, another Wu, third tone, the Marshal Wu character. So many emperors take this name. He was a bloody and vindictive sort, but he is credited with making peace with the Northern Wei, and we'll get to the Northern Wei in a moment. All in all, this Emperor Wu was a good emperor, but prone to the dark side, like many an emperor before him and to follow. He loved gaming, carousing, and was a profligate spender. And so, the Xiao family of the General Xiao Daocheng, later Southern Qi founding emperor, now dead in his tomb for only 11 years, is tearing itself apart, and we're only into the reign of the second and third emperors. State affairs suffered as a result of all this constant skullduggery going on in the capital, in Nanjing, which of course back then was called Jiankang. Finally, one of the Xiaos, a distant cousin of Xiao Daocheng named Xiao Yan, who, by the way, was able to claim ancestry from the revered Xiao He of Liu Bang dynasty fame. So he had the, the equivalent of street cred back then, and he deposed the last southern Qi emperor in 502 and established 
the Liang Dynasty, and finally we get a good one. But guess what this Liang Dynasty founder gets? Yeah, another Wu. We have Han Wu Di, Wen Wu Di, Jing Wu Di, Liu Song Wu Di, and now we have Liang Wu Di. Liang Wu Di, one of China's great emperors. After all the intra-family warfare going on during these southern dynasties, it was a breath of fresh air when the Liang Dynasty began. It was also known as the Southern Liang Dynasty. Three more emperors followed the founder Wu Di, and the Liang Dynasty lasted for a good 85 years, from 502 to 556. Wu Di reigned for almost the entirety of the dynasty. He was an almost fanatical Buddhist, and an ungodly amount of temples were built and maintained during his reign. Buddhist clergy became very rich and influential. Liang Wu Di was considered a great scholar of Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism, and he cherry-picked the best aspects of each and applied these greatest principles to his administration. It was common afterwards for people to follow all three religions, not in any particular orthodox way. And all three appealed to the Chinese people, but not in a strict sense. Even to this day, it's still common to follow all three. Invaders from the North presented a challenge to the Liang Dynasty. Seven years after this great champion of Buddhism and the founder of the dynasty dies, it falls to the last of the southern dynasties. And this last dynasty was called the Chen, or Southern Chen Dynasty. Its founder was Chen Baxian. He was a Liang Dynasty general who, well, he turned on the last emperor and made fast work of him and set himself up as emperor in 557. He had two good years of prosperity and stability, but died in 559. And guess what posthumous name he had? Yeah, you guessed it, Chen Wu Di, another Wu Di. I guess whoever had to fight to get to the top and found their own dynasty automatically became a Wu Di, or a martial emperor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Buddhism continued its ongoing penetration into the lives of the Chinese. More and more, it grew into the fabric of daily Chinese life. Chen Wu Di was followed by Chen Wen Di, his nephew. He was considered a good emperor too, and the Chen dynasty had some success in battle and expanded its territory. Other than the emperor Chen Xuan, who reigned competently from 569 to 582, there weren't any strong rulers. The end came for the Chen dynasty in 589 when they were defeated by Yang Jian, who we will look at in a moment. Now, once the Chen dynasty falls, it's curtains for the southern dynasties. Whether you call them the four southern dynasties of Liu Song, Southern Qi, Liang, and Chen, or if you call them the five dynasties and throw in the eastern Jin in the mix, or if you call them a sextet and consider the first of six to be the eastern Wu of the Three Kingdoms period, that period ended in 589, a banner year in Chinese history, because that was when China was unified once again under a single emperor. Now, concurrent with 
everything I have just told you were the five northern dynasties. Again, these were not Han Chinese emperors like in the south. They were all the Wuhu people and mostly Xianbei at that. Remember, Xianbei were the largest tribe of the Xiongnu. The territory was up in the north, north of the Yangtze, and on both sides of the Yellow River. First, we had the Northern Wei, which ran concurrently with Eastern Qin, Liu Song, Southern Qi, and the Liang Dynasty. This was a long one, and to be truthful with you, this is the main event of the five northern kingdoms. The four that followed were hardly as memorable or left behind a heritage like the Northern Wei. It lasted from 386 to 534, almost 150 years. The Northern Wei, in time, broke up in 535 AD into two dynasties, which were known as the Eastern and Western Wei. These were concurrent with the Liang Dynasty in the south. And then you had the Northern Qi, followed by the Northern Zhou, which straddled the Liang and Chen Dynasties to the south. Now, even though the Northern Wei was founded during the period of the Sixteen Kingdoms, it's not considered part of that time. The Sixteen Northern Kingdoms we discussed in a previous podcast, and these were mostly non-Han, small, petty kingdoms that filled the vacuum once the Jin Dynasty rulers were booted out of the north and Luoyang was sacked. The Sixteen Kingdoms period ran from 304 to 439, and it was a dismal age indeed, as I mentioned last time. The Northern Wei began in 386 during this time, but lasted almost a hundred years beyond the end of the Sixteen Kingdoms period. The Northern Wei goes by several names. It's also referred to as the Toba Wei, Later Wei and Yuan Wei. Unlike the Sixteen Kingdoms period up in the north that is considered a dark age in China, these northern kingdoms saw great progress and intensive sinicization by these barbarian folk. It was a time when Buddhism reached into these people's lives and it was embraced no less enthusiastically in the north as in the south. Two of the great tourist sites in China are caves or grottos of Yungang up in Datong in the northernmost uh, part of Shanxi. This site is known as Yungang Shiku and maybe the more famous Longmen Shiku in Luoyang. This site in Luoyang has about 2,300 caves and 2,800 inscriptions, 43 pagodas, and over 100,000 Buddhist images from small to gigantic. It's a World Heritage Site, and if you ever visit China, you should try and squeeze this into your itinerary. So, when I say Buddhism triumphed up north amongst these Xianbei people, believe it. The capital of the dynasty initially was up in Datong, but as these Xianbei people became more and more sinicized in their daily life, the capital was moved to Luoyang, where so many Chinese dynasties before them reigned. And then they rebuilt the city to a degree of splendor not yet seen before. And to go with this sinicization, these people, the, the Toba, gave their dynasties and emperors a new name, calling themselves the Yuan Wei. You see, the population was flowing from north to south. So the Xianbei rulers knew without question they needed to hang out enough enticements to keep as many of these Han Chinese within the kingdom to be used for you know, their skills, particularly their administrative skills, and their knowledge, scholarship, and, of course, labor, both on the farm and in the workshop. The Northern Wei was established in 386 by Tuo Ba who reigned as Emperor Dao Wu beginning in the year 399. 
Yes, the same old third tone, Wu, which means martial or military. So you can figure out how he came to power. He reigned till 409 until he was murdered by his 15-year-old son in a messy and complicated ending, as so many of these things are. He was a harsh dictator and a nasty sort, especially during his final years. Topa Gui was followed onto the throne by his eldest son, Topa Si. This was uh, not the son who murdered him. Uh, it was a different one. After all the territorial expansion and war that his father reigned over, this next emperor, who reigned as Ming Yuan Di, remember that Di, fourth tone on the end, means emperor. You hear me say it all the time. Uh, he brought about a period of stability, consolidation, and introduction of good governance not to mention a more harmonious rule than his father who founded the dynasty. There was still quite a bit of fighting going on, and at this time the Liu Song is founded in the south, and the northern Wei were still battling with the remaining kingdoms of the Sixteen Kingdoms period. Toba Si, or Ming Yuan Di, was followed by his son Toba Tao, who became the northern Wei emperor Tai Wu. Yes, once again, same military Wu again. It was during the period of this emperor that the last of the 16 kingdoms were vanquished and the north of China was unified under a single ruler. So the southern and northern dynasties period eh, starts in the north with the northern Wei emperor Taiwu Di. Now he was a big-time Taoist and not a friend of Buddhism. He was convinced by his prime minister Cui Hao that Buddhist temples had aided the Xiongnu rebels that he was trying to put down in his quest to unify the north. So Buddhism was outlawed under pain of death during his time on the throne, and this edict was loosened up towards the end of his reign, and Buddhism made a comeback once this emperor passed from the scene. And whenever Buddhism fell out of favor, you can rest assured there was a huge resurgence for the Taoists and their ilk. In 450, the Liu Song invaded the northern Wei and tried to take back some lost territories south of the Yellow River. The Liu Song forces were eventually pushed back and didn't get what they want, and in retaliation, Emperor Taiwu invaded Liu Song's northern provinces. Sima Guang, the historian of the later and more well-known Song dynasty of the 11th century, he wrote a history of China that uh, covered the Warring States period in 403 BC to about 959 AD, and he wrote of this nasty war between the Northern Wei and Liu Song, and I quote from the uh, book, The Wei forces laid South Yan, Xu, North Yan, Yu, and Qing, and Ji provinces to waste. The Song deaths and injuries were innumerable. When Wei forces encountered Song young men, the forces quickly beheaded them or cut them in half. The infants were pierced through with spears, and the spears were then shaken so that the infants would scream as they were spun for entertainment. The commanderies and counties that Wei forces went through were burned and slaughtered, and not even grass was left. When sparrows returned in the spring, they could not find houses to build nests on, so they had to do so in forests. Wei soldiers and horses also suffered casualties of more than half and the Xianbei people were all complaining, unquote. This emperor was assassinated in 452, and after the usual chaos that seems to always follow regicide, one of his sons was named the next emperor, who was a mere puppet and lasted only a year before he was done in. 
A breath of fresh air followed, and you had relative peace and calm under Emperor Wencheng. All the prohibitions against Buddhism were lifted, and this emperor himself was a rather devout Buddhist, and he lasted till 465. I mentioned the Tuopa Wei sort of turned their back on their own traditional tribal ways and completely embraced the Han Chinese way of doing things, especially at the imperial court and how they set up a governing structure. And this began in earnest with the Emperor Xiaowen, who reigned from 471 to 499. Now is the time when the South, in a way, triumphed over the North, with the, you know, the whole Chinese way of doing things. The Chinese philosophers, the arts, the customs, and perhaps most significant of all, the way the Chinese ran their government and bureaucracy. And starting here with Wei Xiaowen Di at the tail end of the 5th century AD, you see the North and the South sort of have this kind of balancing thing going on. And the heavily populated North has already by this time and continues to migrate to the relatively sparsely populated South. The population North and South of the Yangtze starts to even out a little. And now you have that almost narcotic influence of all these great things about the Chinese it starts to permeate throughout the north, and this emperor swallows it hook, line, and sinker, and all the reforms in government start happening all at the same time, and it's here where Emperor Xiaowen drops his Tuopa surname and says, from now on, my surname is Yuan. Now, this Chinese character Yuan, that Tuopa Hong, who's now Emperor Xiaowen, takes for his surname and dynastic title, is the same one that Kublai Khan takes for his Mongol Yuan dynasty 700 years later. Emperor Xiaowen moves the capital against great opposition to the ancient Chinese capital of Luoyang, and concurrent with this time period, the Southern Qi is having their quarter century in the limelight of Chinese history. Xiao Wen Di was constantly at battle with them, fighting for territory and supremacy. Let's just fast forward to the end of the Northern Wei Dynasty. We have four more dynasties to go yet, and I thought I was going to try and squeeze the Sui Dynasty in this episode, and that's going to be next week for sure. The final emperor is Xiao Wu Di. Yep, same Wu as all the others. The best days were already behind the Northern Way. For the past several emperors, it had been one endless struggle within the court and with other Xiongnu and Mongol tribes all sniping from the north. When you skim over the surface, the history tends to read like just an endless soap opera of princes betraying princes, consorts betraying dowagers, and this one and that one forced to marry or forced to commit suicide. But it's overwhelming, and I admit even monotonous, but very well documented. At 535, the Northern Way breaks into two, and we have from that point on the Eastern and Western Way. This split was down the center, dividing those who were of the Han mind and those who still clung to the tribal Xianbei traditions and institutions. The Eastern Way lasts for 15 years, ending in 550, and the Western lasts 22 years, ending in 557. Now, at the same time, you have the Northern Qi, which is what the Eastern Way morphs into in 550. There isn't much to say about the Northern Qi, except to say they were as violent or even more violent than any of their worst predecessors, and you could count the total number of emperors on one hand, and each one was more incompetent than the next. Some beautiful Northern Qi ceramic art, however, managed to be somewhat of a silver lining at least, so it wasn't a 
all a bad period. The last of the five northern dynasties was the Northern Zhou. They were the successor to the Western Wei. Remember, the Eastern Wei turns into the Northern Qi, and the Western Wei becomes the Northern Zhou. And Northern Wei, of course, grandfathered the whole thing. So Northern Zhou defeated Northern Qi in 577, and this made the Northern Zhou the last man standing in the north. Enter at last Yang Jian. He was the game changer here. Yang Jian was a very competent official working in the Northern Zhou government. He served under the last two emperors, Zhou Wu Di, yep, same Wu as all the others. Uh, the other was Zhou Xuan Di. Yang later became father-in-law to the second to the last northern Zhou emperor, Xuan Di. And when Xuan Di died, Yang Jian seized power as regent and ruled through the last emperor, Jing. He had this emperor, Jing, make him a uh, prince, prince of Sui, in 581. And soon thereafter, he deposed the last of the northern dynasties. And from that point onward, in 581 until 604, you had the Sui dynasty, which we will look at next time. For now, we have Yang Jian taking power in the north and setting himself up as Emperor Wen of Sui. At once, he arranged to go vanquish the last remaining southern dynasty, the Chen. After some stops and starts, the Chen is defeated in 589 with barely a whimper, and the last Chen dynasty emperor, Chen Shubao, lives under the good graces of Yang Jian, who, with the defeat of the Chen, is now emperor of a unified China in 589. And... It's here where we'll stop until we resume next week with the Sui Dynasty. And so we end our little overview of the southern and northern kingdoms. China is in for a real good time starting about now. This period in China from 420 to 589 yielded some rather good things. It was around the time of the Western Jin that the Stirrup made their entry into this world. And from that point on and throughout this militaristic period, cavalry becomes more deadly and important a force thanks to this great invention. There were great advances in almost all the sciences, in agriculture, philosophy, and in engineering. The Liu Song and Southern Qi yielded the great ancient Chinese mathematician and astronomer Zhu Chongzhi, that's, uh, that uh, distinctly shaped Chinese pagoda, so iconic and admired all over the world, arose during this time period too. And it was a formative age in Buddhism in China, which was about to enjoy a heyday like never before in the Tang Dynasty. And many of some of the great works of Taoism were written and organized during this Nanbei Chao. Over in the West, the Southern and Northern Dynasties were concurrent with the fall and sacking of Rome, the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. The Anglo-Saxons by this time are settling in Britain, and Attila the Hun was doing his thing. All in all, despite the constant wars, China marched forward, not backward. This was only 170 years, and China already had seen more than its share of these interregnums, so to speak, in between the great dynasties. Things dissolve, then there's a shakeout, and then the good times roll. And they are indeed going to roll, so join us next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. This is Laszlo Montgomery bidding everyone around the world, wherever you may be, a fond farewell from the wet city of Claremont, California, on the edge of Los Angeles. For all my American listeners across this great land of ours and living overseas, I wish you all a happy Thanksgiving, or Gan Jie, as it's called in China. So take care, everybody.